0: Welcome to The Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health, and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 20 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. Welcome back. I apologize for my unanticipated absence without notice. We are doing massive renovations at my house, and as I've been joking with my staff and, uh, and patients, <laughs> I'm living what's called the porta potty lifestyle. And it's, you know, it's true what they say about renovations. They really mess with your life. And I have had a really hard time getting back on track with a whole host of things. Fortunately, my runs are still happening, but there's many things that kind of fell off my plate, per se. And I'm, I'm getting the hang of it now. I'm getting the hang of how I'm going to do the next, probably the next two more months of my life with this going on. So thank you for coming back to listen to another episode of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm going to make a commitment right now to do my best to give you more notice if I'm going to fall off the face of the earth for two episodes. And, and today is a mini obsession that I have. Today we are exploring inflammation and brain health. And I'm so interested in this subject because I think it's what it explains some of the reasons why what we do as naturopathic physicians helps in the neurological and mental health space. But today we're going to be specific. We're going to focus on inflammation and brain health using depression as the model, or using depression as our entryway into that topic. And as I mentioned, I have this mini obsession with today's topic, and I have since somewhere around 2008, 2009 when I was attending a conference somewhere in the States, and one of the presenters, a man named Dr. Jeffrey Bland, he's a PhD in chemistry, and he's become very vocal supporter of of naturopathic medicine. I think he's considered one of the main thinkers behind the movement of functional medicine with uh, medical doctors. So he he was at this presentation or at this conference, and he outlined in great detail how persistent low-grade inflammation, so chronic inflammation, how it's a noxious feature of many of the conditions we experience in the developed world. So things like heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, and he felt that to address this persistent problem we would need more than just one drug. This wasn't going to be a one-and-done thing because it was causing such widespread challenge and was coming from so many widespread challenges in a person's life. So he was making the point that it wouldn't be a specific drug that would, that would really get to the bottom of this problem, but more that we would need lifestyle changes and lifestyle medicine to be a bigger part of people's lives if we were going to work hard on this particular problem in the developed world. And I went away from that conference. I think that's the only thing I remember from that conference. I'm sure there's other things that have been metaphorically added to my golf swing, but I don't remember those things. I don't stand out. This stands out, not only because his data was really convincing and interesting. He was putting something together that I I simply hadn't seen anyone else put together yet. So it was fairly cutting edge at the time. And it was also true that addressing chronic inflammation through lifestyle change would, I realized it would fall completely smack dab in the center of the naturopathic doctor's scope of practice. So when he was at this conference presenting, I really felt like he was speaking a lot to the growing need for what folks like I do or other folks out there who are naturopathic physicians who are practicing evidence-informed care. We think a lot about the underlying causes of illness. And I saw us as just having a lot of the tools to help out with this problem. I also knew back then, after seven or eight years of practice, that this kind of change, addressing lifestyle to try to reduce inflammatory factors in a patient, was something that a conventional medical professional was going to have a hard time with. Not because they wouldn't want to, not because they wouldn't care about it, but because Making meaningful change in things that are lifestyle-based or dietary-based, etc. takes time, it takes coaching, it takes meeting the patient where they are and walking with them over time, and often involves a lot of relationship building. And these are things that can't be easily done in 10 minutes or less with your doctor. As I repeat often, every time the opening line of this podcast is that I have over 20 years of clinical practice with folks with mental health and neurological challenges, actually 23 years now, to be exact. But so by the time I was in that lecture hall, I'd had seven to eight years of practice working with these folks, with folks with depression, Parkinson's disease, MS, I'd seen so many people with brain based health problems, because that's all I wanted to really work with. That was my main focus. And so I'm I realized that even though he had not touched on it at all. So this this presentation was largely about health, heart health and the big ones, so heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes. I made a note to keep up with the research on how inflammation would be affecting the brain, the brain and the nervous system. And so how would it be would be affecting things like depression or things like ms or things like parkinson's disease and here's your parkinson's disease bingo card i am going to mention parkinson's disease right now and i will again later most likely because it's another mini obsession so we know in parkinson's disease inflammation plays a really big role in the progression of the, of the illness and and also that it's common to have a depressive comorbidity in in those patients. And part of the point I'm going to make in this podcast is that I don't think that's a coincidence that those two things occur together. So fast forward to 2023, I've been updating myself on the latest research for this podcast, and it's become really clear the importance of inflammation in brain health and, and in mental health and neurological health. It's really crystal clear though with depression. And that's a really interesting thing because it's it's well I'll get into it. But first, before I get into that, I want to talk about inflammation just to bring folks up to speed who are non-clinicians listening to this who may not really fully understand what inflammation is. Inflammation is a whole host of processes that occur in our body when the immune system is defending against something, so an infection, an injury, with acute local inflammation, we'll see things in tissues, like we'll see swelling, redness. We might see pain at the site of an injury or the site of an infection. So if you think if you sprain an ankle, you're going to see swelling, redness, and pain at that site. With an acute infectious illness, inflammation will show up a little differently. So we'll see a fever, we'll see fatigue, we might see muscle and joint pain. And all of those are symptoms of a part of the more general a systemic immune response to fighting a virus or bacteria, and inflammation is involved in that process as well. So acutely, inflammation is really important. It serves to rally the troops. It brings white blood cells to areas of infection to help kill off invaders or to trigger tissue repair. And this is a really good thing, right? This is something that a healthy system is going to do and do well. And truthfully, there's, there's not a time where there isn't a bit of inflammation going on in our bodies, a bit of, let's call it healthy inflammation, because there's always a little bit of repair work that needs to happen in our bodies, and a tiny bit of productive, healthy inflammation keeps us well. So we don't want to vilify this. It's, it's normal. Inflammation is a normal and healthy process in our body when it's doing the job that it's meant to do. We need it. It's not bad. But persistent low-grade inflammation is a completely different beast. This is when the immune system is producing inflammation ongoing, but not in tiny little levels, in more than tiny levels, In, in levels that are significant enough that they start to affect the body. This is a level, though, that we won't feel it. So we, we won't feel those symptoms of, of inflammation necessarily. So we won't feel a local swelling, redness, pain at a site, heat from a site. We're, we're not necessarily going to have a fever when this is going on. So it's not enough inflammation to create those symptoms, but it is enough to create problems because inflammation produces these reactive oxygen species that harm cells and that create cell death or create injury to tissues that then has to be addressed by the body. And if that's happening even at a low grade but too much, we can see how that over time adds up to larger problems or more damage than we would otherwise have to a specific organ or tissue. And so you're probably wondering what do we think causes this type of problem? And I, I think it's fairly hard for anyone out there to say that there's a really clear understanding yet of what causes this, but we know that there's some contributing factors that make it more likely that person will have higher levels of low-grade inflammation. So if they have a lot of stress or they have a history of, of trauma, so complex PTSD or PTSD, there is an association with more elevated inflammatory markers in those folks. People who are making dietary errors, this is really important because this is a really great lever that we can move and really put our thumbs on the scale of inflammation, drive it down. Lack of movement or exercise, another place where we have this massive opportunity. Toxin exposures in our diet or environment, we don't necessarily have control over those things or we have minimal amounts of control. We might want to take control where we have it in those minimal ways. But, you know, sometimes you don't get to decide that there's a toxin in your environment. You may not even know, right? And then illnesses or conditions that can create low-grade inflammation. So autoimmune diseases, often folks will have a higher low-grade level of inflammation going on. People who are overweight, they will have higher levels of inflammation just going on in their body. So people with high body mass indexes some of the studies I looked at, body mass indexes over 25 was used as a way to find subjects that they knew would be inflamed. Just give you a sense of how tight that regulation is. Other illnesses like diabetes. And I want to highlight one other thing that every time I go to the dentist, I take a photo. I think I have like five photos on my phone now of this chart at the dental office because I just Do you ever want to forget this? Dentists use a marker for inflammation. That's actually a blood test that we're going to talk about later in this episode. They use that marker to help them grade the severity of gum disease. So another place that we don't think of, as clinicians, I don't think we necessarily think, oh, maybe we should send that person for a dental cleaning or make sure that they're getting their dental cleanings and getting their gums assessed but if that person's walking around with some elevated inflammatory markers and they don't see their dentist or they have some dental problems, it would be really helpful to know if that person has gingivitis and pretty decent case of it because that, the treatment of that will bring down their, their inflammatory markers. I digress. So this was what Dr. Bland, though, was talking about. He was talking about chronic inflammation that causes damage to tissues and that alters processes in our bodies to the point where it is contributing to disease and unwell states. So the next question really is, what does this have to do with depression? It appears that inflammation is a pathological mechanism active in many cases of depression. So to quote a 2021 review I looked at, titled Depression Biological Markers and Treatment, They they included an interesting sentence, which was depression is considered a systemic illness with different biological mechanisms involved in its etiology, including inflammatory response, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction, and neurotransmitter and neurotrophic systems imbalance. In other words, inflammation may be a mechanism that creates or contributes to a state of depression. So some researchers are studying if inflammatory markers can be used to identify what we might call a subtype of depression, like an inflammatory subtype of depression, or perhaps maybe another way to look at this is they're looking to identify treatment targets for folks with depression. There's one other novel bit of thinking about inflammation and depression, which is this idea that depression is a symptom of an inflamed brain. So instead of simply a process that's going on in the background and contributing to the whole phenomena, the idea here is that similar to the pain, swelling, heat, and redness of an acute local inflammation, inflammation in the brain may be expressed as the actual depressed mood. This has been refined a little further to subcategories of symptoms that are included in depressed mood it may also not be that simple. Perhaps mood disturbances is only one of many potential symptoms of chronic inflammation in the brain, or that there are more specific symptoms, as I mentioned earlier, of depression that are attributable to the inflammatory aspect of it. And so it could help explain why there's quite a bit of variety in the way that people express depression It varies quite a bit from individual to individual. We know there's a cluster of symptoms, but not everyone with depression has every element of that cluster of symptoms going on. So many interesting research topics here. Many of these avenues are being explored. So depression as a symptom of inflammation is interesting, as it could help explain why depression is a common comorbidity in other conditions, So if we think of, get out your Parkinson's disease bingo card, I'm going to mention it. So if we think of people with Parkinson's, we know they have highly inflamed brains. That's not up for debate. And we also know that depression is really common with people with Parkinson's. PD patients are 45% more likely to have current depressive symptoms than healthy controls. And inflammation may play a role in some of this trend, of course, along with other changes in neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine. Another example of this could be that people commonly report feeling depressed when they have influenza. That's a time when systemic inflammation is quite high. Markers inflammation will be 10, 20 times above what we would consider normal, during those times. And it really could be part of the mood changes that are going on when people have the flu. So what I'm interested in, in general, though, is what does this mean for patients? What does this mean for clinicians who are helping people with depression? How do we apply this? Or, or is there some new therapeutics or reasonable therapeutic targets on the horizon that we want to be looking out for, or even using right now? So one question that I really find interesting is could inflammatory markers actually help us with identifying treatment opportunities? And one thing that's being investigated is this testing of inflammatory markers to see if they change with treatment. So if an inflammatory marker is a helpful marker, perhaps one indication of it being a helpful marker is that when you successfully treat depression, it changes. And the research is kind of mixed on this. A 2021 clinical study that was uh, done by CAFOD and associates looked at 90 patients with moderate to severe depression that were treated for 26 weeks with either escitalopram, which is an SSRI, and an SSRI that is known to be anti-inflammatory, or nortriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant. And they measured inflammatory markers in these patients at baseline, at eight weeks, 12, and 26 weeks to calculate what they called a composite inflammation score. And then they used standardized rating scales to collect information on the severity and nature of the specific symptoms that those patients were experiencing. And the outcomes were interesting, and they reflect some of the outcomes that are being found now in other studies being done on inflammatory markers and depression. So they did find that 17 of the 27 inflammatory markers they tested decreased significantly during antidepressant treatment. But this didn't seem to correlate with overall depression improvement. They had a lot of markers and it's interesting that they didn't have C-reactive protein which we're going to talk about in a, in a moment but C-reactive protein is a really commonly used inflammatory marker right now in medicine and it's often used to detect things like severe inflammation in in the context of infection or cancer or autoimmune disease but also it's used to assess for cardiovascular risks at lower levels so it's already a, a commonly used marker and they didn't use it in this study which I found a little a little surprising. So it's possible that the drop in, in those inflammatory markers, those 17 inflammatory markers that that did reduce in these patient populations is just basically because they were taking an anti-inflammatory in the form of an antidepressant. And that for this group of patients, we weren't really seeing a lot of patients where this was a reasonable overall treatment target. So it You know, in a sense, you could say, yeah, you gave people with inflammation an anti-inflammatory, and so that treated the inflammation and brought these markers down, but it didn't necessarily get you to other endpoints. They also found in this study that the severity of depressive illness was not correlated with inflammatory markers, but they did find something that I thought was very interesting, which was that changes in inflammation seemed to correlate with response to neurovegetative symptoms. So what are neurovegetative symptoms, you ask? Well, asked and answered. (laughs) These symptoms are things like insomnia and hypersomnia, dysregulated eating, fatigue, and decreased energy. So there was a correlation to changes in inflammation, but it seemed to be with just these symptoms here. Insomnia, hypersomnia, so oversleeping or undersleeping, changes in appetite, energy levels, and fatigue, overall fatigue. It's notable that other studies have correlated specific inflammatory markers like CRP and interleukin-6, another uh, common marker used in studies for inflammation, and a marker called TNF-alpha or tumor necrosis factor alpha with specific symptoms. And again, not with overall depression severity, but with things like Appetite, hypersomnolence, weight changes, energy levels, aches and pains, and sleeping problems. So, I think you're seeing a commonality here. I hope you're seeing that. It is probably important to note that not all people with depression, as I mentioned before, have elevated inflammatory markers. So, the identifying of inflammation in someone with depression is more to serve the purpose of possibly individualizing their care not whether or not they actually have depression, and certainly not to rate the severity. Like, it's not a marker of severity of illness. The general consensus from my reading right now is that the data is still pretty confusing. There are some glimmers. Something really exciting that I want to share with you that is just in early stages, but interesting research that is looking at the intersection of these inflammatory markers, and a nutritional therapeutic. So in this case, in this research, they're looking at EPA supplementation. So EPA is an omega-3 fatty acid found in fish oil. So they're looking at EPA supplementation in patients with major depressive disorder who also have high CRP levels. This is a 2022 study out of Massachusetts General Hospital and Emory University, looking at 61 unmedicated adults with major depressive disorder. They had to have a body mass index over 25, meaning they had to be overweight or obese. And the reason they did that is that they know that people with obesity or people who are overweight have higher CRP levels, so they have higher inflammation. We know that that's a strong correlation to. obesity and being overweight is that your, your inflammatory markers go up. And so they were looking at these folks to qualify for this study, though, you had to have a, a C-reactive protein, this marker of inflammation of over three. And then they randomly assigned these, assigned these folks to placebo, one gram, two gram, or four gram per day doses of EPA for 12 weeks. And they followed them with standardized depression rating scales and, and symptom scales. Only the 4-gram dose was actually found to correlate with a successful depression treatment, which was defined as an over 50% reduction in depressive symptoms. This was also the only dose that showed significant correlation with lowered CRP levels, so lower markers of inflammation, from baseline. And then these same authors did an additional paper based on this study looking at some of the some blood markers that they took from 42 of the study completers. And they were looking at these things called pro-resolving lipid mediators. Stay with me. I'm going to explain it. So pro-resolving lipid mediator, mediators, which of course is going to be turned into an acronym called SPMs. So the four gram per day EPA group showed a significant increase in a couple of these SPMs. I'm going to give you some more four-letter words here. So they there was an inc- increase in what's called 18HEPE and 13HDHA. It's not important what they were called. What's important is what they do. So what they do is they are these pro-resolving lipid mediators. They help with resolving inflammation in the body. So I'll take a step back here. Chronic inflammation is thought to be related to impairments in the body's ability to resolve the process. So not necessarily that you have more inflammation going on or starting, but just that you're not really good at cleaning it up. So it just keeps collecting. These SPMs are considered critical elements in facilitating inflammation resolution, and they appear to be lower in folks with the obesity, also with folks with cardiovascular disease. And interestingly enough, for populations that I like to work with, like people with Parkinson's, other neurodegenerative conditions, including people with Parkinson's, they have lower levels of these SPMs compared to controls. So given that the 4-gram-per-day group had an increase in these SPMs, and that that correlated with both a decrease in CRP, the inflammatory marker, and a significant reduction in depressive symptoms, it may indicate that these higher EPA doses providing a substrate for these patients to quench or resolve some of the depression-causing inflammation. I told you it was really cool. (laughs) It's far from certain, though, that inflammation will be a major treatment target for depression. So even given that really cool little study, it's still a little study, doesn't tell us a ton yet. It seems more likely to me now, though, than back in 2008, when I was sitting in an auditorium getting my first glimpse of what really is now a major area of research in many arms of medicine, it seems far more certain to me now that this is an important part of care for people with depression. When you think of this, the World Health Organization states that 5,000 of the global population experiences depression. That's a lot of us. That is 280 million folks, people. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of problems out there. So I would argue that a new way to help folks or a new way to, a new lever to pull, a new target of treatment, not just changing neurotransmitters to try to help out. I think this is a reasonable and exciting area to be, to be looking at for depression. So I clinically, I actually do test. So even though there's a lot of questions around this, I actually do test CRP in all, well, as many of my patients with depression as I can. And the reason I do this is that I want to see if a patient might need to address inflammation in general. So as a naturopathic physician, I'm looking at the whole person. And so if I find that this person is inflamed above a certain, so if their CRP is over a certain level, I'm going to suggest to them that inflammation is playing a role in their health. Now, whether or not the inflammation is actually playing a role in their depression, we don't know. But it might be reasonable to address that. And I am hoping that by treating inflammation through diet, exercise, and other means, and there are some reasons why those things are reasonable, evidence-based therapeutics to go after to reduce inflammation. I am hoping that we to move the marker on that particular patient's depressive illness. So it's not a we treat inflammation, we treat the whole thing. It's do we have an opportunity to reduce your inflammatory load, and by doing so, do we move the needle on depression? Sometimes we get really remarkable outcomes. Sometimes we don't see so much, and usually we see something in the middle. It's not at all guaranteed. However, clinically we do, as I mentioned, see some success with this approach. So to review, what have we, what have we learned, or what do I hope you've learned <laughs> from today? I hope that you've gotten at least these four take-homes. Depression is not simply a neurotransmitter issue and that among the many physiological processes that are now understood to be involved, we know that inflammation contributes. Two, research is far from clear yet on how big of an effect or influence this has on depression. We know it's a player, but we don't know how big of a player. We've also learned that not all people with depression have elevated inflammatory markers, and that this might indicate that those that do have a subtype of depression or perhaps a sub-target for treatment. And then I think we've also seen some evidence that supports a nutritional approach, in this case in the form of a really high load of fish oil with high EPA, but still a nutritional support, that maybe helping people resolve their inflammatory pressures and in so doing, reduce their C-reactive protein and their depressive symptoms in a randomized controlled trial. And I must add, from two killer research institutions. So you can see what's pretty fascinating. It, it's, it's still got a ways to go to become a solid system of approach to depression, but I personally love these gray areas in medicine. Honestly, I think most of medicine actually is largely gray areas, or at least I'm not privileged to work in the area where it's black and white. And I feel like one of the basic tenets of naturopathic medicine is this ideal of individualized care. And I believe, you know, this whole podcast today is an argument for this approach, at least in the care of depression, because the current understanding is now recognizing that depression it isn't just multifactorial in terms of how you can arrive at depression because it can be through stress it can be through trauma it can be through a whole host of other things including genetic pre- predisposition it can be secondary to a brain injury it can be secondary to some other medical condition and more and more and more by taking an individualized approach to care in depression we are really taking into account that there are multiple potential contributing factors and one of them is inflammation so I hope you're hearing in here that I don't think it's the be-all end-all depression, but I do think it's an important one that we can look at and try to assess. And then we can tailor our treatments to that person's unique experience. And that's where naturopathic doctors, we shine. We're really good at meeting the individual, understanding the layers of problems that they're experiencing and how that might be influencing their overall health, and then helping them take the steps, starting with the best steps, the most, the most likely to be effective steps towards improving their outcomes overall. It's, it's a cool way to practice medicine. Honestly, I love it. So any care provider will also attest to this, which is that there are very few more satisfying things in medicine than seeing someone who's been really severely depressed recover. They get their lives back, they get themselves back, and it's a really beautiful thing. So I put this out there for food for thought, and I Do you want to underline that if you think you want to explore this further for yourself or for a loved one, please reach out to your qualified care provider for support. Don't try to do this on your own. As always, we are much better when we are working with a team of care providers who are looking out for our best interests. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it for you. This is something that we end up coming back to, I'm sure, into the future. This, again, is an evolving area of understanding of depression. And fortunately, depression gets a lot of research because it's really a big problem. And unfortunately, that that means that we have to research it a lot. And the new ways of looking at how mood is affected by our bodies as a whole and The acknowledgement that depression is a systemic disease is a really big step forward in trying to resolve this problem for people. Thanks for listening. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. This really helps us with with growing the podcast and getting this message out to more people. And share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Thanks so much. I look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. Our planned episode is going to be a deep dive into brain health and diabetes. Until then, please be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.